This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. That's 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here's our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this verse. Thank you for the wonderful truths that you have in this verse here about this parable. And we pray that you'd help us to learn this morning as we study in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Matthew 13, 44, that's where we're at. Matthew 13, 44, come right in, come in, come in, come in. All right, Matthew 13, 44, here we are. So it's a very simple verse, it's a very, and yet it's packed with meaning. Matthew 13, 44, here it is. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth, and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Okay, so this is a parable. We're in the parables. We're in the section of the parables. The Lord Jesus has this intense desire for us to not be in the dark with our understanding of the kingdom of heaven. And every time the Lord Jesus uses this term, says these words, the kingdom of heaven is like unto, he's in essence saying to us, let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. He wants to do that. And this is God, why? Because God has an intended eternal residence for us, an eternal address, and he just wants us to know about it. So he never says the kingdom of earth is like unto, because he doesn't really want us to focus on the on earth. We got enough problems here on earth, and, and that's just, and earth for us is just one grand distraction that takes our eyes away from the kingdom of heaven. And so he doesn't want us to get as distracted. After all, we're on a journey, we're on a march, we're on a, a destination, we're going to the kingdom of heaven, just like the book Pilgrim's Progress with the, the wonderful allegory where that man named Christian realizes that his hometown is called the city of destruction. And he's decided to leave his hometown of the city of destruction. He's no longer gonna be his home. He's gonna leave the city of destruction. He's gonna head for his new city 
called the Celestial City. And all along the way, such a great story, all along the way, he's distracted by one distraction after another that's all designed to cause him to stop, settle down, forget about the city, the celestial city he's heading to, and just make Earth his home. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is our coach. He's our coach as we make our journey from our city of destruction here on Earth to the celestial city, or what he calls the kingdom of heaven. And now he wants, the Lord Jesus wants for us to understand how people come into the kingdom of heaven. He wants to understand the who. Who comes, who makes it, and who doesn't come to the kingdom of heaven. And as a matter of fact, if we really look at the reason, why did the Lord Jesus come here? There's a lot of controversy about why he came here. Why he came here? Well, the reason he came to earth is because he was sent as the sent one. That's the Messiah. That's the meaning of the word Messiah. He was sent as the sent one by God to earth so that he could make this invitation, this great invitation by God for people to come in to the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because it's all to do with God's feelings, God's attitude, which are expressed in 2 Peter 3, 9. 2 Peter 3, 9, which says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And furthermore, I don't know why she has trouble hearing me. Every morning she has trouble hearing me now. <laughs> All right, never mind. All right, she said, because God, he is not willing, according to 1 Timothy 2.4. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God is not willing that any person, no, sorry, that was Peter. He said he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But in 1 Timothy, that's the negative side. He's not willing that any should perish. The positive side is 1 Timothy 2.4, he will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So therefore, in this section of Matthew 13, he started off teaching us and explaining to us by a picture, by an analogy, by something that's similar to a parable of the sower and the seed. And the sower and the seed gives the reason why everyone doesn't come into the kingdom. And in that parable, there's no indication that anyone was born to receive the word and enter into the kingdom of heaven or someone was born not to be saved. There's no indication that anyone was predestined, elected to receive the word and be saved. There's no indication that anyone that had God had predetermined who would receive the word and be saved. And there's every indication that each person is responsible himself for if he has a hard heart, if he has a shallow heart, if he has a directed heart, or if he has a good and honest heart. So with the parable of the sower and the seed, the Lord was teaching that the reason why some are saved and enter into kingdom of heaven is because they have that kind of heart. And they've resisted having a hard heart. They've resisted having a shallow heart or a distracted heart. And then the Lord then turned to a parable of the sower of the good seed and uh, question there is, why didn't God just remove all these people that have rejected the invitation to be saved? And the parable answers the question and, and as to why did God doesn't immediately remove from the world those who make their decision and why the saved are surrounded by the lost doing evil in the world. 
And then the Lord turned to the next parable, which was the parable of the mustard seed, to show how something as little as the gospel, as the gospel invitation, could be some so big in the world. And next the Lord turned to teach us in the parable of the woman with the leaven and how this little gospel can spread so quietly, so quickly, so far in the world. Now the Lord turns to look at this great news that God has for man. This is, this is really good news. It says in Isaiah 40, verse two, Isaiah 40, verse two, where God says, speak comfortably to Jerusalem, cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished and that her iniquity is pardoned. This is great news, good news for man. The war between God and man, it's over. It's good news that, that man is, can be forgiven, as it says in Psalm 130, verse four. Psalm 130, verse four. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. There's a way. There's actually a way for a person to be 100% forgiven by God. John 129, John 129, because he's the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And God has provided, God has provided, this is great news, God has finally come through on Abraham's promise in Genesis 22.8, Genesis 22.8, when Abraham told his son Isaac the great promise, Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And this is exactly what God did. He provided himself as the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. That's good news, it's great news. That's gospel, that's what gospel means. Good news, it's God has come as a lamb of God and the blood of the lamb has been shed and now there is both, both. First John 1, 7, first John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. First John 1, 9, couple verses down, first John 1, 9, we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, number one, our sins, and number two, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the blood brings this forgiveness from sins and the cleansing from sin, and when a person has that, that forgiveness for sins, that cleansing from sin, he's in the kingdom. He's in the kingdom of God. So with this next parable, the Lord is going to explain what happens when a person discovers the good news, this good news, the gospel. And for this explanation, the Lord has chosen for us to focus our attention on a man, a certain man in one simple parable in verse 44. And in this parable, the Lord has painted for us a picture for us of this man. So we need to really get into this picture. And the Lord has allowed us to see certain points of this man. We have to get into it. We have to study this picture. You know, it reminds me that, you know, in the 1970s, I made a decision that our customers should not come and visit us over on that side of the hill in Lakeside on this ranch because we didn't show very well. Made good products, but we didn't show well. So I said, okay, we're gonna get all of our customers from Europe, which meant that from since the 1970s, I've made over 100 trips to Europe to visit our customers. And that put me in weekends in Paris and Florence and Frankfurt and Berlin and, and Rome. And so what do you do? You go to art museums, that's what I did. And the paintings were interesting. But for me, 
you know, instead of looking at the painting, I kind of turned aside and looked at the people looking at the painting. They were more interesting to me, at least, you know. I, I, I used those art museums for people watching. Uh, that was a more interesting, it's fascinating. And as I look at the people who were looking at the paintings, I saw two types of people in the museum. The one type was the checklist tourist, right? The checklist tourist obviously came to the museum with an agenda, you know, I gotta see the Mona Lisa. They came to saw the Mona Lisa and Jack saw the Mona Lisa and off they went to go see the next painting and they went for the Picassos and the Monets and the Van Goghs and, and you could just picture this checklist in their mind as they go home, they would say, yes, I saw the Mona Lisa. Oh, I saw the Scream, I saw the Starry Night, you know, all those famous paintings. And they stood in front of those pictures for a brief moment of time and then they moved on because they had a checklist, you know? And that checklist was driving them. That was a checklist tourist who visited the art museum and the museums were full of those checklist tourists. Then there was another type of person in the art museum and that person was the stop and study learner. That's what he was, he was stopping. And I say learner because that person was wanting to learn from those paintings, something they hadn't seen before. And they actually, many of them had notebooks and they weren't just drawing it, they were writing down what they learned. And they would stop in front of a painting and sometimes they would sit on the bench there in front of the painting for a long time and they would look at the painting and they would search in the picture for something they hadn't seen before and they had spent a lot of time looking at the painting. And they weren't on an agenda to see many paintings. Sometimes they came to the museum and they just, for one painting, that's all, they just sat there. And it was almost as if they were, they were saying to that painting, Come on, fascinate me, fascinate me. Take me on a journey of imaginations. Take me to places where I can wonder. While they were looking at this painting, it was as if they were almost in a trance. You know, I'd kind of looking at them and make sure I wasn't seen staring at them, but I was. And then right in the middle of their study would come the checklist tourist and block their view, stand right in front of them. And sometimes it was, <laughs> it was so funny. And sometimes the checklist tourist would say, oh, excuse me, pardon me. Oh, sorry, you know, as they blocked their view. Well, when you looked at the stop and study learner, you could see that whatever they had observed in that painting was slowly percolating down through their mind. And they were looking for what feelings the painter had, and they were trying to figure out that what the painter was trying to convey. They were on the hunt for the message that the painter was trying to send and they were asking themselves, why did the painter choose those colors and why they chose, the painter chose that background and those shades and how all those played together to create this feeling or this message the painter intended. So those were the two types of uh, people who came to the art museums of Europe, or still come to the art museums, the checklist tourist and the stop and study learner. Well, these parables are like paintings in God's museum. The painter is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's painted these masterpieces for us. Christ is the painter. Each word he has chosen to use in these parables is like a paint stroke that he leaves a mark on the canvas with. And now that leaves us a choice as to what we wanna be. We can be the checklist tourist who sees these beautiful parable paintings here, or we can be the stop and study learner with these parable paintings. So the checklist tourist with the parables 
he will check the parables off like paintings, a checklist, checklist. I read that parable, yep, check, about the sower and seed. I memorized it, yep, check. I memorized the parable, I know where it's found, I know the address, you know. And that's a checklist tourist, and he's very happy with that level of knowledge of the parables, just to know them, that where they can be found in the Bible, but nothing more. Nothing of stopping to see how the parable speaks personally. And that's a checklist tourist with the parables. Now, and then there's the stop and study learner of the parables. He stops. He's not happy with just to know what the parable says. He's not happy just to memorize the parables. He knows that there's something much more in the parables than what's on the surface. He knows that the parables have a message for him, a hidden message, and he's got to dig it out. And he knows that all he's got to do is just stop, spend time studying the parable, probing it, mulling on it, meditating on it, thinking about it. We want to be those people. We want to be the stop and study learners of the parables. We don't want to be the checklist tourist with these parables. So here we are. We're going to sit down in front of this parable for a long time. That's why we're only doing this one verse. And we're going to see in this parable of the man who finds the treasure in the field that, we're, first of all, we're going to see there is a treasure hid in a field. That's interesting. Second, we're going to see that this man is a treasure hunter. He doesn't just have me be walking in the field. No, he's on our mission. Third, we're going to see that this man hunts for treasures all alone. No one else is with him. And fourth, we're going to see that this man hunts for treasures on other people's properties. He's got a lot of chutzpah. And then we're going to see that this man is, he knows what he's looking for, and he knows the value when he finds it. And then we're going to see how this man's a man of action, big action. He knows what he wants. He's willing to give up everything in order to get what he wants. No second thoughts or hesitations. And so this is the picture that the Lord has painted for us with his brush in hand. It's a, wow, what a great picture. What a remarkable man. How fortunate we are to be able to, to go to this museum. Look at this. Okay, now, the Lord has painted for us a picture of a field, and we can see in the picture that there is a treasure hid in the field. Verse 44 says, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field. Treasure hid in a field, it was of great value. It was a prize as valuable a prize as the key to heaven itself. An eternity of happiness and peace and comfort and joy. What could be better than that? What's a better prize than that? But it's not out in the open in this field. It's hidden. It's waiting to be found. Everybody would like to find it, but the treasure has not been accidentally hidden. It's been purposefully hidden, like the afikomen during the Passover Seder dinner. There is this matzotash, the matzah pocket, that has three pieces of matzah in it, three slots. Each slot has a matzah in it, and they're all unbroken, and that represents the three persons of the Godhead, the person of God the Father, the person of God the Son, the person of God the Holy Spirit. And at one point during the Seder dinner, the matzah, the middle matzah, is removed separated from the other two pieces of matzah. That represents God the Son. And that piece of matzah is broken. 
is broken, representing the Lord Jesus at the Last Supper. People call it the Last Supper. It was actually the last Passover. Better to call it the last Passover. I don't like to call it the last supper because I like supper and I don't want there to be a last supper, but, <laughs> but I like it to be the last, pa- no, it is the last Passover because not only was it the last Passover for him, it was the last Passover for man because the next morning he would be crucified as the Passover lamb of God. And that was the last Passover. And then that broken piece of matzah that's removed from the other two is then hidden, put another little napkin, hidden and searched later by the children and the child that finds that, so-called afikomen, afikomen, it's Greek, means he comes, receives a prize. Now, not everyone finds the afikomen, only one child finds the afikomen and that afikomen is the treasure that's hidden in the field. The Afikoman represents God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that treasure that's hidden in the field in verse 44 represents the Lord Jesus himself. He is. He is the all wisdom and knowledge treasure, as it says in Colossians 2.3. Colossians 2.3. Jesus, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is the treasure. He is the all the fullness of God treasure. So in Colossians 1.19, Colossians 1.19, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. He's the key to heaven treasure, key to heaven, John 14.6, John 14.6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. John 10.9, John 10.9, he says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall find pasture. And it said about him, in the great sermon there in Acts 4.10, Acts 4.10 and 12, that it was the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And it said, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So Jesus Christ is the treasure in the field. And this great treasure, according to verse 44, is the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, how strange that the treasure of Jesus Christ should be hid, but the decision to hide the treasure of the Lord Jesus Christ was taken by or made by God the Father. Luke 10, 21, Luke 10, 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Father is, but no one who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So the decision to hide the treasure of the Lord Jesus Christ was made by God the Father. He decided to hide the Lord Jesus Christ. Specifically, God hid the Lord Jesus Christ from a group, as it says there, we just read there in Luke, a group called the wise and prudent. The Greek word for wise, for wise and prudent, is the word sophos, sophos, from which we get our name, our word sophisticated, sophisticated. The Greek word for the word wise is, it means sophisticated. 
And the Greek word for the word prudent literally means someone who has put it all together, someone who's got it all together. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California 92071. That's P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. That's tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. For more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. That's 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries.